Welcome SGO listeners. This is another podcast as part of our SGO task force for board certification support to help you think of some of the considerations for your uterine and GTN section. I'm Tracy Lynn Hall, a gynecologic oncologist at Baylor College of Medicine who passed my boards back in 2019. I'm joined today by two excellent speakers. I'm Claire Hopno. I'm also from the Baylor College of Medicine. I took my boards last year in 2022. I'm Alex Melamed. I'm at Massachusetts General Hospital and I also took my boards last year. If you haven't already checked out our other podcasts on caseless creation, radiation oncology, ICU and perioperative considerations and the other disease sites, be sure to do so. They're available on Apple, Spotify and other podcast platforms. We are also very excited to announce that we have live sessions at the 2023 SGO annual meeting. We have a representative joining us from ABOG to discuss the logistics of the certifying exam as well as the assessment and scoring process on Friday. We will also have several sessions where participants can meet in small groups with task force facilitators to discuss hypothetical cases. So be sure to keep an eye out for these sessions when registering for the annual meeting and sign up if you're interested in participating. All right, for this podcast, uterine cancer alone is an enormously broad topic with both carcinoma and sarcoma for candidates prepared to talk on. On top of that, GTN is in the same hour on your certifying exam. So there's truly a great deal to study here. We don't have any insider information on what will show up on the test, but as people who have passed, we will help you focus on some of the resources that we found helpful during our preparation. So for our two speakers, when you were studying, what were some good places to start for what might show up on this part of the test? I think it's been mentioned in some of the other podcasts, but of course, the ABOG GYN oncology exam bulletin is the original source document for this, and you should check that. But I think some great sources of information to get started include the NCCN guidelines up to date, and then the review lectures on gyo.edu. It's also great to work with a study group if you can have one. A lot of people will do things differently. It helps you figure out why you do what you do. And then you also get to hear their perspective on why other people do it their own way. And even if you don't have a study group, remember that this task force has sessions at the annual meeting to practice mock scenarios or hypothetical cases to get just this kind of experience um, and diversity of experiences. All right, well, let's dig into endometrial cancer. This is the most common gynecologic malignancy with an evolving treatment paradigm. There will be lots on the case list and a lot of focused discussions on this. So how did you begin to break down this broad of a topic? So I started by breaking it down into smaller topics. I thought about the surgical management first and then initial adjuvant therapy, including chemo and radiation. Another way to break it down is to think about systemic treatments, to think about early disease, advanced disease, and recurrent disease, and then thinking about the novel agents, including the targeted treatments, and then immunotherapy. Another thing that's really important in endometrial cancer is that we treat histologies sometimes differently. So uh, I find it helpful to think about how I treat each histology for, and how I do that for each stage. And then of course, it's really important to think about molecular subtyping. So thinking both about HER2 or mismatch repair, and also the TCGA categories are the way that they're used clinically using the PROMISE algorithm. So when to do surgical management of endometrial cancer, there's some classic papers I know we all had to study in training and reference back to. What comes in mind when or gives you flashbacks to fellowship in this space? Definitely starting with GOG-33. The findings of GOG-33 are all about the nodal metastases based on the uterine risk factors. 
I think the other important bit of surgical management is knowing the data behind why we do a lot of these cases minimally invasively. So the LAP2 trial by Walker et al. in JCO, and also the LACE trial by Janda et al. in JAMA. I know it's pretty commonplace now for everybody to be doing sentinel lymph nodes, but that wasn't always the case. When you think about doing nodal assessment, what all considerations should candidates be prepared to talk about? I started by looking at the data on survival benefit or lack thereof of the lymphadenectomies. And the good articles that I found for that were the one by Bendetti and Panici et al. in the JNCI 2008 and Aztec in Lancet 2009. It's also because we are doing so many sentinel lymph nodes, it's good to know what the data is behind that. And then also knowing your institutional protocols, because we don't all follow exactly what the studies did. There's some great trials in this space, Senti Endo trial, the FIRES trial, the Centaur trial, among others. I think also it's really important to know what you and what folks at your institution do when nodes don't map. So personally, I use frozen section and go back to the Mayo criteria. I know a lot of folks use the Sloan algorithm, but it's really important to know what you do in this case and why you do it. And I think the other bit that's important in this space is to really understand that sentinel lymph node biopsy isn't just about identifying and biopsying the node, but it's also about processing the node node differently than you would a routine node. So knowing about ultra-staging and how that's done in your institution and understanding the difference between micromets, macromets, and isolated tumor cells. There's a great article by Plant et al. in Gynecologic Oncology in 2017 that speaks to this, and also another one by Alasi in Gynecologic Oncology in 2015. We're seeing more and more young women with endometrial cancer. The management of ovaries in these young women with endometrial cancer is definitely something that can come up. What are good references to think about when to take the ovaries versus when you can consider ovarian preservation. This is something that I had to think about a lot. And the two articles I typically quote are going to be the Wright et al. in JCO 2009, and then Matuo et al. in Gynonc in 2019. Also on a similar thought is the concept of fertility preservation. What's a good reference for those considerations? I think I agree. This is a really rich topic to discuss. There's a great more recent paper on this topic by Weston et al., which is a prospective trial in American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology from 2020. And I think really what's most important in this topic is knowing who you consider to be a candidate for hormonal management and how do you work them up and what hormones you use and how much you monitor them and so on. I agree. I think I also, uh, it's important to know sort of what you do yourself, what response rates you quote to patients, and then when you give up on the fertility sparing and convert to definitive or more traditional therapies. As if candidates don't have enough to think about with regards to endometrial cancer. One other topic that has become more widespread in the last few years is genetic syndromes and specifically Lynch syndrome. When do you screen for Lynch syndrome and what should candidates prepare for for this? I think this is a very important topic and it's really important for you to know your institutional protocol for screening for Lynch syndrome among patients with endometrial cancer. We know that the absence of MSI and expression of all four MMR proteins on ISC rules out most or all cases of Lynch syndrome. So our institution does MMR testing on endometrial biopsy specimens that show cancer. It is very important to know your institutional protocol for screening. We know that if there's an absence of MSI and all 
the MMR proteins are present on IHC, that rules out the vast majority of cases of Lynch syndrome. So our institution does MMR testing on the endometrial biopsy, and then we do promoter methylation testing. And if that on cases that warrant that, and then we do germline testing subsequently to that. The point is, it's very important for you to know what you do and why you do it. We do something very similar, but we evaluate the hysterectomy specimen instead of the EMB. Again, so this may vary at your institution. It's not all dependent on you. And so knowing your practice and your institution's practice is very important. This is great information to think about with our initial surgical management of endometrial cancers, but let's go ahead and move on to adjuvant therapy after surgery. One thing that is a classic board topic is post-operative adjuvant radiation. What are the key studies here for candidates to focus on? GOG99, Portec1, and Portec2 are definitely classic. Knowing what risk factors to triage patients to surveillance, external beam or vaginal brachytherapy is very important to know. And again, it's really important to know your institutional practices and what radiation oncology preferences are, especially if you vary a little bit from these trials and the post-operative treatments that we give. For example, one question our radiation oncologist always asks at tumor board is the tumor location which is not included in any of the trials, specifically looking at lower uterine segment involvement uh, when deciding vaginal brachytherapy versus external beam. And so that was something that was on my case list that I had to explain that was potentially at times varying from the classic trial results. There are also some key trials to consider when it comes to thinking about upfront post-operative adjuvant for our higher risk patients, including those with advanced stage and non-endometrioid cancers. What comes to mind here? Yeah, so definitely Portex 3 comes to mind, GOG 258. And then for the high-risk histologies, those were included in GOG 249. All of these trials are important to know. And it's really important to think about not only about the outcomes in these trials, but how you use these to counsel your patients and formulate your treatment paradigm. It's also important when you're thinking about non-endometrioid high-risk histologies to think beyond GOG-249, specifically that recent papers on the use of trastuzumab for HER2-positive uterine serous cancer based off the paper by Fader and colleagues in JCO 2018. And then carcinosarcomas are another high-risk histology that's sometimes treated a little differently. And the GOG-261 article by Powell et al. is a good reference for that. What about the treatment for recurrent disease? So carboplatin and paclitaxel have long been the go-to for treatment for patients with recurrent disease based on GOG-209 and now GOG-261. It's also important to think about a more recently approved drugs in this space, including immunotherapy. For our patients that are MMR deficient and MSI high, knowing the data on primrolizumab from Keynote 16, which is in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015, Keynote 158, which is in JCO 2020, and the Garnett study, which is in GM Oncology in 2020, is very important. It's also important to think about how you treat your patients who are MMR proficient in the recurrent sitting setting and know the data about lymbatinib and pembrolizumab from Keynote 775 by Macker in New England Journal last year. Since we're using so much more pembrolizumab, it's important to know the immunotherapy toxicity as well, because that will be fair game. And then it's important in the recurrent setting to think about your algorithm for selecting non-platinum drugs for these patients as they progress through lines of treatment. What drugs you're going to give, what order you like, and how you counsel patients on them. Also knowing the response rates and even thinking about hormonal management if you give it. I've used everolimus and letrozole in some patients with good success. And so having that on my case list means that I had to study the data by Slomovitz in the JCO 2015 
protein that support its use. Well, that already seems like a lot to study, even with endometrial cancer being something that we see all the time. Let's go ahead though and start thinking about other topics that gets brought up in these hours of exam studying, including uterine sarcomas. There's been some good consensus reviews on sarcomas that I remember looking over when I studied. Which of these consensus reviews did you find to be the highest yield? I started with the GCIG review from 2014. It's a little bit old but I think it's a good place to start looking at uterine and ovarian carcinosarcomas. And then there's one on endometrial stromal sarcomas as well. They're good. They're high yield. They're a nice broad overview to start with. Just like with endometrial cancer, there's a lot to think about when it comes to uterine sarcomas. How did you break up this topic when you were studying? Just like in endometrial cancer, it's really helpful to break these up into categories. So I think it's important to think about early stage versus late stage disease, and also high risk, high grade sarcomas versus low grade sarcomas and their histologic types. We typically think about uterine sarcomas as a disease that we manage surgically when possible. When thinking about staging, what data do you think of with regards to the lymph node assessment with uterine sarcomas? So there's good data in this space by Leitao from 2003, CAP in 2008, and then Goff in 1993. And they all show that routine lymphadenectomy is not associated with prognosis for the sarcomas and that all the lymph nodes that came back positive had actually already been clinically suspicious or in patients that had gross extrauterine disease. The Goff papers support this in both endometrial stromal sarcomas and leiomyosarcomas. For stage one disease, what trials do you consider when counseling patients on postoperative adjuvant therapy in leiomyosarcoma? We have GOG20 looking at leiomyosarcoma with no residual disease, showing no difference in patients receiving chemotherapy versus those that went on surveillance. There's also GOG277 looking at stage one uterine fine leiomyosarcoma that did close early due to poor accrual, uh, but the data has been published at after 48 months, and it seems to suggest, in fact, that adjuvant treatment may be associated with a worse survival. There's also the studies about radiation. So the ERRTC 55874 study looking at radiation in stage one and two leiomyosarcoma also found no difference in outcomes, but is a great study to support the surveillance for these patients. What about in advanced stages? What trials should candidates be aware of for these patients? We definitely utilize chemotherapy in these patients. There's data from GOG87 on gencitabine and docetaxel, as well as GOG250 that shows that adding BEV does not help in this population. And then there's the Geddes study published in 2017, which is important, which compares doxorubicin as a single agent versus gemcitabine and docetaxel and finds that there's actually equal outcomes with less toxicity if you use doxorubicin alone. I think there's a lot of uh, difference in practice about which of these drugs is now considered standard first line. Looking at more subsequent lines, there's the palette study that looks at pizopinib. And then there are other biomarker specific drugs to be aware of if you have anyone on your case list receiving them. This is definitely some great points. I'm going to move on to gestational trophoblastic disease. I have to admit when planning this podcast, I was excited to have you two volunteer to help for many reasons. One, which is while GTD is rare, you two trained in Chicago and Boston, which are both GTD centers of excellence and have experts on the topic. So let's jump into how you studied for GTN on the boards. Back when I took boards, the GTD NCCN guidelines were brand new. So the workup and management of these was a hot topic. What are your go-to references here? Again, the NCCN guidelines, great place to start. There's also numerous papers by Dr. Lorraine over 
several decades that are great overviews looking at diagnosis, definitions, and then management. There's also a great review by the great Ross Berkowitz, who's another leader in the field of DTN. This one's published in Gynecologic Oncology in 2009. The paper goes through everything from diagnosis to initial management, salvage therapy, and post-treatment considerations. And then from 2021, there's a FIGO cancer report by Ngan et al. that included both Berkowitz and Lorraine on diagnosis and management of gestational trophoblastic disease. And that's a great comprehensive reference as well. Many of these patients get referred to us after initial DNC with their benign OBGYN once they meet criteria for postmolar GTN. Often these patients will still have uterine disease, but not much else. What do you think of in the management of these patients? Yeah, I think it's really important to know the data from GOG242 and the role of a second DNC. We know that in some cases, a second DNC can be curative in gestational trophoblastic neoplasia. There's also an observational study by Kazeshki et al. that looked at a significant number of patients that were cured with the second DNC. Just like with any of our patients, we always think about postoperative adjuvant therapy. When considering postoperative adjuvant chemotherapy, what papers and what regimens are good to know? So it's important to know that not all patients need chemo. And there's a paper is chemo always necessary for non-metastatic GTN from 2018 that helps to start thinking about that. When considering patients who do need chemotherapy, I liked GOG-174. It looks at weekly methotrexate versus actinomycin D. There's also GOG-175 that looks at different regimens of methotrexate versus the actinomycin D. Um, It closed early, unfortunately, due to poor accrual, but I think that it still is an important study to look at. And we know that experts differ on the best regimens for these patients, and opinions are driven by outcomes, but also by cost, by convenience, and by side effects. So be sure to know your institutional ability to give the multi-day protocols and why you give the regimen that you choose. Also, if you go with the methotrexate first, there's GOD-176 that shows that actinomycin D in a salvage situation for low-risk GTN has very good salvage rates. Uh, One paper that I think includes a lot of this information that we haven't mentioned yet is the Society for Gynecologic Oncology review on GTN that just came out in 2021 with Neil Horowitz as the first author. And and that paper talks about treatment of high-risk patients and goes through the data that supports the use of Emico in these patients. And there's a cohort study by Bauer in the Journal of Clinical Oncology from 1997 that shows that this regimen is effective and well-tolerated. What about for advanced disease or progressive disease? Again, the consensus papers, the NCCN guidelines are a good reference. There's also a paper from uh, Lorraine in the Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2012 that looked at salvage regimens in patients that progressed beyond EMICO. Also, it's important to know about low-dose induction EP uh, for ultra-high-risk GTO, GTN. And there's a great paper also by Bauer in JCO and, uh, and also Ali Fringes in JCO uh, that will talk about these regimens. This truly is some great information and a lot of information for our candidates to think about. Thank you so much to both Dr. Claire Hopeno and Dr. Alex Malabad for volunteering your time to help our task force and support these SGO candidate members. Thanks also to each of our listeners for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Please be sure to join us for our other podcasts on the disease sites, as well as the in-person meeting in 2023 in Tampa. Thanks so much. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology 
or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On The Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.